to you. You know, researchers have discovered an interesting trait about worker ants. Uh, Worker ants actually have a system of training one another. And there's there's a specific type of worker ant where one ant rarely heads to a food supply alone. Instead, researchers have found that a more mature ant will find a less experienced ant, pair up, and go to the food supply together. In essence, the more mature ant is showing the less experienced ant the way. And it works. So these these researchers timed it. And when the less experienced ant tries to go alone, it, it took it took the ant thirty five percent longer to get there. And the crazy thing is that they also timed the more mature ants. And when they tried to go when they went alone, they went four times faster. And so it's interesting, the more mature ants are actually slowing down to train the less experienced ones in how to get there. And this is what they do. This is their system of training. The two ants head out together, and the less experienced ant runs on the heels of the more mature one. Whenever they hit a landmark, they stop, and the less experienced ant goes and kind of gets familiar with the territory. Once that ant is ready, it runs forward to the more mature one who's been waiting in front and clicks on its back legs, and they keep running forward until the next landmark. And this is how the less experienced ant gets to know the way. It's a process called tandem running. Guys, I got to tell you, this is just begging to be a sermon illustration. Begging. Our passage this morning gives us the opportunity to kind of run at the heels of the Apostle Paul. Isn't it incredible that Scripture gives us this opportunity to learn from him? We have the opportunity of tandem running with Paul as he shows us the way of following Jesus. In other words, we're going to follow Paul as he follows Christ. And this is profoundly biblical. There's there's all sorts of verses about this. I'm going to read them off quickly so you don't have to look them up. But I just want us to feel the full force of how often the Bible talks about this. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Again, Philippians 4.9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. 2 Thessalonians 3.7 You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And there's more, but I think the clearest one is 1 Corinthians 11.1. Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There's a lot of material in there about imitating our leaders, imitating Paul as he imitates Christ. And it's not about Paul... It's not about following him as an end in itself. He's a fallen human being like all of us. But it's about with Paul, like Paul, following Christ. It's about learning from Paul as the more mature one in our tandem run of following Jesus. 
So in our passage today, we will do just that. We will trail behind Paul and learn from his example as he sets his face to following Christ. And throughout our time together, our, his example will confront us with one question. And I want us, us to just keep this in our minds. Lord, am I willing? Lord, am I willing? So as we shadow Paul this morning, we will arrive at three major settings, spanning across four chapters of Acts and stretching over two years of his life. In Acts 21, we begin on our way to the first setting, Jerusalem. The background takes place in Acts 20. Before setting off for Jerusalem, Paul called together all the leaders of the church of Ephesus, the the people who were serving as elders and pastors there. And he told them that the Holy Spirit was compelling him to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew there would be danger there. In his final words with these Ephesian leaders, he charged them to keep their integrity and to care for the people of God. He commended them to stay true to Scripture and to avoid the love of money. I can't think of better advice for a group of pastors. And with that, Paul got down on his knees. It was not the custom of the time. This was his special practice. And he prayed for them, committing them to the Lord. And after he was done praying, you could hear the tears. You could hear people sniffling as they said goodbye to Paul. Can you imagine leaving a place where you are so well-loved, where people would weep to see you go, and heading towards whatever was waiting in Jerusalem. And now in Acts 21, the figures of the Ephesian leaders are fading into the distance as the boat sets away from the harbor. And after making a few day trips, Paul and his companions found a a ship that took them the 400-mile stretch all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, and they landed at Tyre. And there was a few days of layover at Tyre. So they decided to visit some of the brothers and sisters in town. After catching up at home, I'm, I'm sure they asked Paul where he was heading. Jerusalem. Maybe they were silent at first, kind of glancing at one another, unsure of what to do and then approached Paul later, or maybe they responded right away, Paul, don't go. Feel the tension of verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. We'll make sense of that later, but for now it's conflicting, to say the least. And then after another emotional goodbye, his team arrived at Caesarea, the last stop before Jerusalem and they stayed with Philip and his family one of the original deacons I wonder if they talked about Stephen and his willingness to share the gospel even in the face of danger danger that Paul had been a part of and after several days a prophet named Agabus came down see we met Agabus before back in chapter 11 he had prophesied that there would be a, a famine in Jerusalem. And sure enough, there was. 
So this prophet had a track record. And we watch as he takes the cord from Paul's robe. And then he gets on the ground and he wraps it around his legs and he wraps it around his hands, kind of like a hog tie. And then he announces, this is what will happen to the owner of this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. And they will hand him over to the authorities. You know, it's one thing to hear it, but he acted it out. It's another thing to see it. And for, for Paul's friends, this was just too much. It was too much to imagine Paul wrapped in chains and then handed over to the authorities. They knew what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem when he was handed over to the authorities. And so they begged him, don't go. And notice how verse 12, notice this little detail in verse 12. I find it fascinating. It says, we... We and the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So it wasn't just the believers in Caesarea. It was actually Paul's missionary team. Even Luke was urging him not to go. Luke. And the word urge here implies repetitive action. They were saying it over and over And and it says they were weeping. You can imagine them in tears, pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go. Please, don't go. So is there a contradiction here? It says very clearly in chapter 20 that the Holy Spirit was leading Paul to Jerusalem. But then now that he was on his way, was the Spirit saying something else through his friends? How do we make sense of this? I think a closer look at the prophecy of Agabus helps us here. His prophecy never says, go or not. It simply says, this is what will happen. See, it's a warning. But the other believers who were well-meaning, jumped to the conclusion that the warning meant don't go. You see, when we care deeply for someone, it's easy to think that danger always means don't go. But Paul didn't jump to that conclusion. He gently reminded them that no matter what, he was resolved to follow Jesus. And so he did. Within a few days, they set foot in the holy city. And the very next day, Paul went to meet with James and the other believers of the Jerusalem church. And they were happy to see him. I picture them smiling ear to ear as they listened to his many stories about the incredible ways God was moving throughout the surrounding nations. But then there expressions change as they speak with concern. Paul, some of the people in Jerusalem have the wrong idea about you. They think you are telling Jewish people in the surrounding nations that once they become Christians, they must reject their Jewish identity. The leaders were giving Paul the benefit of the doubt. Of course he didn't advocate this. Yes, he was clear that you don't have to become Jewish to be saved. 
But equally, he was clear, you also don't have to become non-Jewish to be saved. What matters is relying on nothing else but Christ for salvation. Trusting in Him alone. So in order to dispel this false rumor, the leaders asked Paul to publicly demonstrate that although he was no longer trusting in his Jewish background, he had also not rejected it. And that he didn't require other Jewish Christians to reject their background either. And Paul agreed to it. If the Jewish people truly believed this false rumor, it could pose an unnecessary obstacle to the gospel. And Paul was all about removing all unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. And so the very next day, Paul wastes no time. He pays the expenses for he and four other men to undergo a a Jewish ceremony in the temple. He hadn't confronted anyone. He hadn't made a scene. He was simply observing a ceremony. But then, boom, out of nowhere, it spiraled out of control. Jewish people from the surrounding area spotted Paul in the temple and they started screaming, Men of Israel, help! The traitor who opposes our people and our law and our holy temple is here. And then it escalated even more. They accused him of a crime punishable by death bringing a Gentile to the temple. They thought one of the Jewish men with him was a Gentile. How dare he defile our holy place? And with that, the the entire city was thrown into an uproar. Imagine being there and, and watching it unfold. People are running from every direction. You see this angry crowd swarming towards the temple. And then Paul disappears, being overtaken by the crowd. He suddenly yanked to the ground and and dragged into the street. A violent stream of fists and sticks and rocks are pouring down on his body. They were beating him to death. But before they could, a commander shows up, breaking up the commotion. Two soldiers grab either side of Paul, standing him on his feet, and the commander cries out, Who is this man and what is his crime? With that, the crowd erupted into noisy confusion. One person said one thing. One person shouted another. There was such a frenzy that the commander had to order Paul to be sent to the barracks. But the mob went running after him, yanking at him, trying to seize him and rip him back. And at the same time, demanding his execution. Away with him, they kept crying. A shout that is strangely similar to that of another crowd years before who shouted, crucify him. Let's take a minute to reflect. We're going to be moving through the material kind of like a camera. But I do want to take a minute to reflect. What do we learn from Paul's example of at Jerusalem we learn that following Jesus may lead us to danger following Jesus may lead us to danger I think like Paul's friends it's easy to elevate safety in our minds isn't it easy to think like his friends God's will 
is for me to be safe. And if I don't feel safe, then it must not be God's will. And I've got to tell you, I struggled with this point. I, I, I struggled with this point because I realized the, the weight of what is being said here. But Paul's example shows us that although safety is a very important concern, it can never be our top priority. It can never be our top priority. It's a very important concern, but it can never be the ultimate one. You know, I was thinking about good news, and I don't, I don't think good news would exist as a church if safety was the number one concern of the people who founded it. I, I don't think actually this church would be in this building right now together if safety was the top concern of the people of Salem. In fact, we can go back farther. I, I don't think that the gospel would have left Jerusalem if safety had been the top concern of the disciples. And so while it is a very important concern, it can't be our top priority. I think sometimes it's so easy to come to God and say, Lord, I've, I've narrowed it down to two safe options. Choose whichever one of these you will. It is very important to be safe. But it is more important to follow Jesus. And while that can be easy to say, maybe we can say that for ourselves. What I've learned from others is that it is even harder to say that for your children. It is even harder to say that for your children. I think about Josie and and Benny and they're sending their their children to Iraq and they haven't told me this but I'm sure that daily they have to say safety is not the top priority the top priority for my children is that they follow Jesus that's what it's about so it comes down to the question Lord am I willing as we continue our journey of shadowing Paul we now arrive at the second major setting, the barracks. The barracks was a military station that housed a battalion of a thousand Roman soldiers. And the tribune was the commanding officer of the battalion, which was further divided into ten groups of one hundred, led by the centurions. In Jerusalem, the barracks were actually located just steps from the temple. And we pick up at the end of chapter 21. As the soldiers are taking Paul up the steps into the barracks, we're relieved to see Paul heading away from the crowd and, and towards a safe place. But then he does something surprising. We see him turn to the commander and say something. They discuss for, the mo- for a moment and then the commander nods his head. Instead of entering the barracks, Paul turns around, faces the crowd and begins speaking. Brothers and fathers, he says respectfully and warmly, The clamor of the crowd is muffled to a hush and Paul begins to share his testimony. Paul begins 
to share his testimony. Can you believe what's happening here? Paul's clothes are tattered and stained from being dragged and wounded. His face is beaten and bruised. His mind is dizzied. And yet he is reaching out to the very people who just got done dragging him and beating him and attempting to kill him. These people who just got done shouting away with him. He's sharing his testimony with them. I see in his heart the Spirit of Christ. Christ who, although he was reviled, did not revile in return. Christ who prayed for those who were executing him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was the Spirit of Christ inside of Paul. The same Spirit who lives inside of us. So Paul begins to speak to the crowd, explaining to them that he could relate to them. In his own experience, he had been so zealous that he was a Pharisee, mentored by Gamaliel, one of the most respected educators of the time. He had been so zealous that just like them, he too pursued Christians, just like they were doing that day. Paul had been there. He had been seeking Christians' death. In fact, that was exactly what he was doing one day as he was traveling to Damascus. Paul continues. So I was on the road to Damascus, and suddenly this light, brighter than the sun, flashed all around me, knocking me to the ground. I heard a voice cry out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. In essence, Paul was saying to the crowd, I thought I had been pleasing God by being zealous for the traditions. But at that moment, on that day, on the road to Damascus, I realized I was at odds with God. I needed the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus. And he was inviting the crowd to come to the same conclusion. You see, the Lord had met Paul in the middle of persecuting him. And the Lord could meet them in the exact same situation. He emphasized that his newfound zeal for Jesus was not a rejection of the Jewish background. It was actually faithfulness to it. He had embraced the Messiah foretold by the Jewish prophets. He had been baptized by a devout Jewish man who was a Christian. And it was in the temple, the Jewish house of worship, that Christ had commissioned him to go to the Gentiles. But notice verse 22. It says, up to this word. The crowd simply heard the word Gentiles. And at once it erupted into commotion. Shouting threats of violent rage. They were saying, away with such fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. We watch as they furiously hurl fistfuls of dust in the air, throwing their cloaks to the ground, a symbol of disdain and resolve to kill. Perhaps some run to collect stones, but the commander grabs Paul and brings him into the barracks. But once inside, it seems that Paul is just out of the frying pan and into the fire. You see, given the extreme reaction of the crowd, the commander assumes that Paul must be guilty of a heinous crime. 
So he calls a centurion and orders Paul to be examined by torture. And we know that this kind of torture often left people either dead or paralyzed for life. It was extreme. But just as Paul was being stretched out by the ropes, I love this, he ever so subtly mentions his Roman citizenship. This is actually a prestigious honor that only a few people had during that time. Paul's parents must have been well-to-do, and so he, he was born into it. It wasn't his decision. And Roman law protected citizens against being examined by this kind of torture. Paul probably never knew how desperately he would need his citizenship someday. But God did. And as someone once recently reminded me, God is always, He is eternally one step ahead of us. But without a clear answer from the crowd, and without the ability to examine Paul, the Roman commander summoned a hearing for the next day. So we watch as the high-ranking Jewish leaders including the high priest Ananias, file into the meeting hall and sit down on the benches. And then Paul is called in. And we watch as he makes his way to the middle of the small hall and they glare at him. And it says, Paul courageously looks them in the eyes. In chapter 23, Paul begins, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. This is not a declaration of sinlessness, but simply that Paul has sought to live uprightly since his youth. But the high priest disagreed. How dare a Jewish trader even say he was remotely upright? So he ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth. The sting of the hit goes rushing through Paul's senses. Paul knew the Scriptures. He knew that Leviticus 19 calls for a just and fair hearing. He would have been more respectful had he known that the order had come from the high priest. But maybe it was his poor vision. Maybe it was the fact that he hadn't been in Jerusalem for a while. Whatever the reason, he wasn't aware it was Ananias. And so he cried out sharply, God is going to strike you, you hypocrite. You're sitting to judge me according to the law, yet you've already broken it by hitting me. Even though his words were true, when they told him it was the high priest, he apologized, citing that Scripture tells him he should be more respectful to the high priest. Isn't it interesting that they were accusing him of parting from Scripture, and here we see him honoring Scripture right in front of them. They begin... He, he, as Paul looks around the room, he realized that it was divided between Sadducees who rejected anything supernatural and Pharisees who believed in resurrection. And so he appealed to the Pharisees. He says, Brothers, I believe in the resurrection of the dead just like you. I'm standing before you today because I've staked my life on the resurrection. But before he could say more, the assembly bursts into loud dissension. The Sadducees shout one thing, the Pharisees shout back. And then they begin shouting over one another at the same time. 
Now the Pharisees stand up actually defending Paul on this point. And then the Sadducees begin attacking him. It elevates out of control. And all of a sudden the two sides converge with Paul in the middle being, t- being pulled back and forth like a rag doll. And once again, the commander steps in and saves Paul's life. The hearing is called off, but the violence doesn't cease. The very next day, 40 Jewish men make a pact to neither eat nor drink until Paul is killed. They approach the Jewish leaders with their plan. Send notice to the Roman commander that you would like a second hearing with Paul. Once he steps foot out of the barracks, we will be ready to strike. But it just so happens that Paul had a nephew in Jerusalem who was at the right place at the right time who overheard this conversation. He ran to the barracks and found Paul. We watch as he whispers into Paul's ear all that he's just heard. Paul signals one of the centurions and sends his nephew to the commander. The commander takes him aside. We watch as he listens concerned to this young man. The commander had seen enough these past few days to believe him. He sends him away with the warning, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. It can be incredibly dangerous. And that very night, without making any delay, the commander sent Paul 70 miles away to the governor. Paul had arrived in Jerusalem a week ago. It was just a week ago. But he had been so unwelcome that now, only days later, he was fleeing in the middle of the night, guarded by nearly 500 soldiers. So what do we learn from Paul's example at the barracks? We learn that following Jesus may lead us to rejection. I think about Paul. See, he had grown up in Jerusalem. He had been a rising star in his school. He had studied with the most prestigious educator that there was. Think of how highly he must have been esteemed. Think of all the respect that he had. And now he comes back and he is just utterly rejected. And I think about this part in Romans where 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 he's sharing his heart and he, and he says, I, my heart is so strong for my kinsmen. My heart is so strong for my kinspeople that, that I would be condemned just to see him, just to see them saved. Isn't that amazing how strongly he felt for these people and yet they rejected him. And this is challenging. This is challenging for you and I. Am I willing to be disrespected because I make a stance for the Lord? Am I willing for people to not think so highly of me because of my stance for the Lord? Again, it leads us to the question, Lord, am I willing? As we continue to shadow Paul, we arrive at the third major setting in our journey, Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of the region where the Roman governor Felix was based. He had Paul under strict imprisonment at his own headquarters, waiting for the case to be tried. 
we pick up in chapter 24. Felix had sent messengers to Jerusalem summoning Paul's accusers. After five days, the high priest and other Jewish leaders arrive on the scene. The Jewish leaders were most likely treated as guests of honor since they had political importance for the governor. They were his major constituents and they were the most influential people in Jerusalem. So I imagine Felix welcoming them with with such honor while Paul was treated like a criminal instantly. And not only that, the Jewish leaders had secured a professional attorney, Tertullus. You see, the stakes seemed stacked high against Paul. So after reviewing the case, Felix called for Paul and the court was convened. Tertullus begins, his words dripping with flattery. Most excellent Felix, knowing that we owe the peace that we have enjoyed so many years to you, And for all the many ways you are working for the good of this nation, we are all profoundly grateful to stand before you today. The reality is, history tells us that Felix was regarded as one of the worst governors in history, known for his harsh brutality and injustice. Tertullus continues, We present before you today three main charges against the accused. Number one, He is a public agitator, inciting riots among the Jewish people and disturbing the peace. Number two, he is a known ringleader for the Nazarenes, a religious faction not authorized by Rome. And number three, he even attempted to profane the temple, a crime which Rome has given us the right to punish ourselves by death. These were hefty charges. All eyes in the courtroom turned to Paul. The governor nods in his direction, and Paul begins. His opening is a bit more honest. He says this, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And from there, Paul continues by responding to three accusations in order. Number one, regarding being a public agitator, These prosecutors can only venture to speak of my activity in Jerusalem. For the short time I was there, it can be verified that never once I was seen arguing or stirring up a crowd, whether in the temple or in the synagogues or even in the whole city. If they claim I was, they should have witnesses here to prove it. Number two, regarding being a ringleader of of what they call a faction, I confess that I am. But I do not regard it to be a faction, for it is not a breaking away from Judaism, but a fulfillment of everything written and hoped for in the Jewish Scriptures. I have not broken with the God of our fathers. I believe the way is the way to worship Him. And I'm not making this whole thing up. This is not a religious experiment, because like these men, I sincerely believe that we will all be raised on the last day and give an account before God. Number three, regarding profaning the temple, I actually just came to Jerusalem to bring a special offering I collected for those in need. I've been working on it for years. Instead of profaning the temple, when they found me, I was actually going through a purification ceremony. Some people claimed I had brought a Gentile in the temple, 
But by law, in order to even accuse me of that, these same people would need to be here. The only thing these men actually witnessed was not until the next day when I was standing before them and I said, I am on trial because of my hope in the resurrection. That's all. That's all that they witnessed. I imagine the Jewish leaders prodding Tertullus, who was shaking his head, unsure of what to say. See, not a single charge of Paul's accusers had a leg to stand on. It reminds me of what Jesus promised his followers in Matthew 10, verses 18 through 20. It says this, on, account, on my account you will be brought before governors and kings and, and as witnesses to them to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. See, at this point, Felix should have set Paul free. Earlier, the Roman commander had written him a letter stating that in his eyes, Paul was not guilty. And now none of the charges against Paul had succeeded. But see, Felix did not want to offend his major constituents. He did not want to make the wrong political move. And on top of that, he wanted a bribe from Paul. So instead of setting him free, he delayed the verdict for a later date. He dismissed the court saying, I need more time. Days passed, and months passed, and seasons passed, and still Paul was a prisoner. But Paul was missional wherever he went. He reached out to Felix and his wife, Drusilla, sharing the gospel with them. Felix seemed interested, but when Paul's message hit too close to home, he cut Paul short. Again, we see him putting off a decision. But Paul continued to converse with him regularly. And Felix would call him in, attempting to get a bribe. But Paul never gave in. How, how long did this go on? The very last verse of our passage. Acts chapter 24, verse 27, tells us, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul remained a prisoner without cause for over two years. So what do we learn from Paul's example at Caesarea? We learn that following Jesus may lead us to waiting. I think this might be harder for us than even danger and rejection at times. Ever since chapter 13, we have seen Paul constantly on the move. He had actually traveled to over 30 cities by this point. And, it, and then he was just stuck. Stuck, imprisoned at the governor's headquarters. His calling was to be an apostle Someone who is sent, but now he was stationary. He might have been tempted to think, this, is not, this was not the plan. This was not what I had in mind. You see, Paul, right before Paul had left for Jerusalem, he had written the letter to the Romans. And in the letter to the Romans, he said, as soon as I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to go to Rome. And I'm going to visit you there. 
This was Paul's goal throughout his ministry. He wanted to get the gospel to Rome because Rome was the heart of the known world. And once the gospel got there, it would spread everywhere. Once Paul got to Jerusalem, he was just arrested. His plan to get to Rome fell through. I got to tell you, I did not know I would be preaching this passage. And a few months ago, I was just reading through Acts, just getting ready for this series, and I got to this chapter. And it was right at this time that, that, that we found out that our housing situation fell through, and we didn't even know what we were going to do next. We, we really had no idea. And, and I read this chapter, and I thought, just like Paul, my plans have fallen through. Just like Paul, I'm waiting on the Lord. But then I noticed this verse. It's the key verse for today. I think it's Acts 23:17. You can check in your bulletins. While Paul was waiting, in the midst of his waiting, Jesus comes in the middle of the night and stands next to Paul and says, Take courage. As you have testified to me in Jerusalem, you will testify to me in Rome. Jesus was saying, you're going to get to the other side of this. Wait on me. You're going to get to the other side of this. And the amazing thing that I find about this, see, Paul didn't know how he was going to get to Rome. But by the end of chapter 26, the Roman government paid for him to be transported to Rome. See, God had a plan all along. God was going to bring him to Rome. As the old spiritual says, I don't believe he has brought us this far to leave us. And I don't know what the other side looks like for you. But I want to encourage you to keep waiting on God. I can't tell you it's all going to work out exactly like you planned. I can't tell you it's going to be wrapped up in this neat little bow. But I can tell you if he's going to get you there, he's going to get you there. He's going to get you to the other side. Wait on the Lord. But the question is, Lord, am I willing? I'd like to invite the, the music team to come forward. And you might be hearing this, and maybe you're even uncertain about following Jesus.